Welcome to Planet Innovators and the Average Joe. Brought to you by Tim. You are in the right place. Here you can get excited about the incredible work going on to protect and preserve our planet and listen to human stories behind the climate movement. In each episode, industry experts and entrepreneurs will help us understand your questions and share how they're leading the way in sustainable practices. Join us as we dive into discussions about topics that matter to you. As a startup, we really appreciate your support with our mission. Subscribe to our podcast and you can see our journey towards a better future. Hi, and welcome to Planet Innovators and The Average Joe. Today, again, amazingly excited that we're going to be talking with Robert Shrimp. Robert is passionate about accelerating the rate at which society decarbonizes, educating the next generation on the challenges and solutions related to this decarbonization process. He is the co-founder and CEO of Solar for Schools, which is helping schools decarbonize with solar energy. Through their partners, they fund, design, install, and operate solar panels on school roofs. So welcome, Robert. Thank you very much, Joe. It's great to be on your podcast. Well, we like to start the podcast with a few icebreakers, just to, to warm everyone up. So your challenge is to answer these as succinctly as possible. We may even just have a yes or no last question as well related to your industry. So you ready to give it a go? Let's do it. Awesome. So first one, tea or coffee? Coffee. And what was your favorite subject at school? Physics. Would you choose to travel into the future or the past? Future. Very good. And a a tough one. So yes or no to this. Do you think solar panels will become a viable option for all schools across the UK in the future? Eventually, yes. Amazing. Well, there we go. Nice and easy. Super easy warm up. Look, I actually, when I was sort of looking at your career trajectory leading up to this point, I was fascinated to see that you actually started with a career related to a degree in aeronautical engineering. How have you gone from that to Solar for Schools? Before we dive into the mission of Solar for Schools, I'm sure our listeners will be super interested to understand that journey. My father was a pilot, taught us to fly, and I liked engineering. So it kind of made sense to do aeronautical engineering. It combined flying with engineering. Why have I not ended up in aeronautical engineering since? I guess partly because at the time, either you go to build airlines, a bit boring, or military aircraft, definitely didn't want to do that. So I thought, well, maybe I could one day start a company building small aircraft, sort of drone type things. But you need a lot of money to do that. So I thought, well, I need to make a career somewhere else first. So I then got involved with the internet space in that no one really knew about the internet when I was around and just discovering it. So that was kind of an area where someone with no experience might be able to make a mark and set up various businesses in that space. But ultimately got a little bit bored and wanted a change of direction because the internet space was kind of very fluid. You'd build a website for someone and two or three years later, it was gone. And I was one day walking down a street in London and I saw a beautiful building and the name of the architect and the date he built it. And it was over a hundred years old. And I thought, wow, he built a lasting legacy. So I thought, you know, where, where can I make something that lasts a bit longer? So I wanted to get involved with renewable energy. Uh, one of my uncles was one of the sort of pioneers in that space and that he was the first person to sell electricity back to a local utility from electricity generated from his solar panels on his own roof. And that idea of basically financing solar panels by selling the electricity from them, then spread gradually to the local utilities around him. In Germany, there are about 800 utilities. Most most towns nearly have their own one. And over a period of about 10 years, they gradually spread and persuaded more and more councils to enable this idea that you feed electricity back into the grid from solar panels. And then that idea then was about to be taken to the Bavarian state by uh, my uncle and his followers. Uh, And the minister who was leading that then was elected to the national government, where he then implemented it on a nationwide basis. So I kind of had solar in my genes through my uncle. So uh, after I sort of did my internet spree and did an MBA, I then moved to Germany to get closer to solar. And at the time, Germany was the world leader in solar and started sort of exploring that for my sins. I did spend a brief time doing wind turbines at Shell, which kind of made sense given aeronautical engineering. 
but I didn't want to work for a large company. I certainly didn't want to work for, for Shell long term. So I joined a venture capital firm for my sons, focusing on renewable energy and in particular solar. And then I joined another VC where we set up various solar businesses uh, and then got a little bit disheartened with the venture capital world, not because of its model, but because of the difficulties in funding technologies in this space. The technologies probably work eventually. The issue was market adoption. And that slow market adoption led me to think, well, what? how do we win some more time? Uh, and one of them was let's deploy more solar on logical places like roofs as fast as we can to buy some time. Uh, and also, how do we then change people's minds and educate the world to start adopting the other technologies that will follow, heat pumps, for example. And therefore, putting solar on schools made a lot of sense. A perfect opportunity also just to explain to our listeners, what is the mission of Solar for Schools? What are you trying to achieve? What problem are you trying to solve? I think there's, there's two. One I alluded to, which is we, we need to deploy more solar faster to buy us time for some of the technologies that we'll need to mature uh, and be ready. And commercial rooftops are quite a challenging place to put solar because you often have a dichotomy or separation between the owner of the building and the person using it. Whereas with schools, that link is much closer, that the user and the owner of the building are much more closely related and aligned for all public buildings. And schools have quite large rooftops, generally. They consume electricity during the day. They're very stable counterparties. I mean, schools very rarely go bust. Occasionally, they close down, but you can sort of predict a certain amount of that within a portfolio. So it's a very safe place to put solar, and therefore a no-brainer from that point of view. But the real kicker, the massive difference, comes from the fact that you're inspiring the students within those schools and firsthand giving them some education around what the potential of solar is uh, and linking that back to the curriculum in terms of energy uh, and decarbonization. And that's the real, the, the real exciting part about what we do. It's not so much the tons of CO2 we'll save by putting potentially 120 gigawatts of solar on schools around the world. That's our kind of estimate as to how much we could put on three and a half million schools. But the impact from educating the nearly 2 billion young people going for education, that, that is massive. And we'll come back to that in a little while. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think even on that note, it's fascinating to see when you talk about the direct link between the owner of the roof and effectively the buyer of the solar, and then the deeper link you've mentioned around the relationship that can create with the educational programs and educating the children within those buildings by bringing them closer to the proximity of what renewable power could be, how electricity is created. You've talked quite passionately in the past about how that role of education can go further in the kind of indirect decarbonization route that can stem from a simple project like putting solar on a roof. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? So, so when we first started, we realized that schools didn't have any money. So we had to come up with a funding mechanism that enabled the schools to decarbonize and save costs by going solar, uh, whilst enabling us or giving us a mechanism to provide the, the education to the schools at no additional cost to the schools. And we thought it was a no-brainer, right? Why would schools not take this up in their vast masses? And actually, you discover that schools are difficult from a point of view of making a decision. There's lots of people who have to say yes, and any one person can say no, and then it doesn't happen. So three years into starting the business, we were like, we're like massively off our business plan. And it's not like I wasn't used to looking at business plans that needed more time, right? I'd been a venture capitalist for sort of six or seven years. I was used to it. It always takes twice as long. It always takes twice as much money. We built that in. And even so, schools were coming on incredibly slowly. And I was getting to the point where my family and my friends were going, why are you beating yourself over the head with this project? Right. Yes, we love it, but clearly schools are just not signing up for us now. Mm. I was kind of really beginning to think, well, maybe I'm just doing the wrong thing. And um, a friend of mine, a, a neighbor uh, who works for a insurance company, knew I was involved with Stoller, and he was building a brand new house, money no object. And I went around to see him, and he was boasting about how he'd worked out how to get around some of the environmental regulation and. So when I asked him, you know, why aren't you putting solar panels on and, and a heat pump? And he goes, oh, yeah, I, I, I managed to find a way around that. I'm not going to do that. I said, but, 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 you know, you work for an insurance company. You can see what's coming. What, why wouldn't you do that? No, no, no. I'm going to put a gas boiler in and, and you know, I'm, I'm going to make the decision. 
So I kind of discussed it with him. I tried to talk about the rational arguments, the economic arguments, the payback, the environmental, the social, nothing. I couldn't budge him. So I went home going, my God, if I can't persuade an intelligent, rational person who's got the budget to do it, to do the right things, what hope have we got as a society? I mentioned this to my wife and my daughter was listening. And I went up here every time I tell this story. And um, she went around to talk to him and talk to his daughter. And the two, I'm not sure what they said to him. Still don't know what they said to him. But he called me a couple of days later and changed his mind. He's installing a heat pump and he's expecting solar panels. And that was when the penny dropped. It's not about getting the schools across the line. That's mm-hmm. the battle I have to fight and win. It's if we can get across that line and we can inspire those children, they can make a difference. because. Pester power is incredibly strong. And when we go into schools, kids ask us, like, yeah, but, you know, you tell us that we can change the world and we can make a difference. But really? How? Mm. And I said, get what you wanted for Christmas. And they go, yeah, sure. Um, well, most of them do. So that's because your parents want you to be happy. They, they care about your future. They, they want to do whatever is in your best future interest. So what you need to do is you need to work out how to solve some of these problems and then persuade your parents to do that. And they go, well, yeah, but, you know, if I persuade my parents, what difference is that going to make? It's like, well, hang on a minute. There are 2 billion young people. You only have to persuade three adults each to make a difference. And that's the point. If we can go into schools and inspire children to learn about energy and decarbonization and then influence their parents to make a difference, then we've got a massive change coming. Because governments, to some extent, want to implement the right policies but they're directed by their electorate. Mm. And unless we can educate the electorate, they can't implement the right policies. A carbon tax. We absolutely need a carbon tax. But that's incredibly hard to get through an uneducated electorate. If we can educate children about it, and they can then influence their parents, then governments can enact the right legislation. The impact of the solar panels on the schools versus the impact of the education is 10 to 100 times greater. It's interesting, even in how it evokes an emotional response in you, you can see the power of that story that can be told by your child to help change often what is, unfortunately these days, fixed mindsets rather than adult to adult or peer to peer where it seems either preachy or it falls on a different side of a political argument or a stats argument, whatever it might be, even financial, socioeconomic arguments. Like Ultimately, if the power of your child coming up and asking you to do something more for them as their present, as their reward. It's just incredible. And when you've seen that process work within the schools that you've deployed solar on, how do the children get close proximity to the relationship of what that actual solar panel does, what it means? How do you translate and educate them? And I say this because I joined uh, and founded Uh, an energy tech company back in 2014 at the age of 23, I had still no idea when I flicked the light switch on how energy actually got there, you know, and I never got taught that. And it was never on my syllabus in any sense, or if it was, I apologize, my teachers, I I just didn't listen. So how, how are you actually implementing that with within the schools and the framework to help with the education for the children themselves? Yeah, that's a very good question. So we do a, a bunch of things. As part of looking after the solar panels, we monitor them uh, in order to do the billing and make sure they're running. And that data we then use on our website and we create a web page for every single one of the schools where we visualize that data. And we use that data in a number of lessons attached to physics and maths. So for example, the chart, the shape of a solar generation chart is quite useful in physics. So you can introduce them to the concept of a graph. I mean, why would I want to learn about a graph? Well, because this chart shows you how much electricity the school's generating versus how much it's using. And then they start going, well, what happens when the sun doesn't shine? What happens with the spare electricity? And you start having discussions around some of the challenges of moving to entirely renewables, which is the intermittency. You can forecast it to some extent, you can predict it to some extent, but it's still intermittent. And how do you manage to balance the grid? And the whole idea of where does electricity come from and how do we generate it and manage it starts that that discussion so that's that's one piece the other piece is in order to look after the systems we have to go in once a year to sort of inspect them and we combine that with um a workshop where possible we can't take the children up on the roof but we can get them to fly a drone so we take a drone 
we take a group of students out. Um, they love flying the drone. They're much better at it than we are. But it's basically a games controller. So we make that piece real. We also then do a number of sort of workshops with them around what is energy? What is a kilowatt hour? I mean, it's the fundamental unit that we will use. One unit of energy is one kilowatt hour. But most of us have no real feeling for what it is other than currently it's very expensive. And equally, when we then show them the solar panels on the roof and we go, we've installed 50 kilowatts. It's a 50 elephants. So how do we turn that into something tangible? And we do that by um, linking that back to how much output they could generate on a static bicycle. So an average child cycling relatively gently could generate about 100 watts. So if you have 10 students cycling together, that would be 1,000 watts or one kilowatt. And if they did that for an entire hour, that would be one kilowatt hour of electricity. So that makes it instantly tangible. One kilowatt hour is 10 of you cycling for an hour. That's the amount of energy you're producing in that time. And then you then talk about the school and how much the school consumes. And then they're like, oh, they will work it out. And they go, my God, we all have to pedal all day, every day to power this school. That's a lot of electricity. That's a lot of energy. And then, then they start to value why you want to switch a light off, why you don't want to leave the lights running at night, why you should switch to LEDs. And it just makes it tangible. And I think that's the starting point, making a kilowatt hour and a ton of CO2 tangible, and then starting to explore how you reduce electricity consumption, how you source electricity from cleaner sources like the solar panels, the challenges around managing that, and then what they can do at home and with their families to reduce CO2 output as a whole across society. Even just how you explain that simply and get to the meaning of why and how it can be understood almost in an analogous manner. That's not too different to almost crossing the chasm that's needed in businesses and how they tell their story to their customers and consumers. You know, we have a channel in our Slack company called Ask Me Like I'm Five, because actually, if you can't explain it to a five-year-old, it's probably not going to penetrate most audiences, especially in a complex industry full of acronyms and, and all the other things I'm sure you've seen. So super interesting to see how you've approached that with, with children. I'm sure there's some learnings there even for our businesses out there that might be listening about how they want to push through projects themselves within their company. You mentioned earlier on you had potentially, if you think about supply and demand to a degree, you have the schools wanting to have the projects and then you have the financing needed to fund the projects. And you mentioned early on, actually, the problem was getting the um, momentum with schools to get enough projects. Have you hit an inflection point there? And, and if so, what helped you sort of get over that line? Is it just it takes time or did you see other opportunities to influence the school's decision making and momentum or is it generally just as we've seen recently, energy crises help push forward that to the front and center of, of any business owner's mind. So it'd be really interesting to see where that changed, if it did change, and now where you're starting to face your next bottleneck problems as a someone who runs a business. I'm sure that's a never-ending experience like it is for us as well. Yeah, at the beginning, it was trying to get schools across the line. There had been a very high feed-in tariff, and on the back of that, a number of suppliers are providing free electricity to schools in exchange for them keeping the export income. So the investors are making a very good return. The schools are getting free electricity. With the demise of the feed-in tariff, that was no longer possible. It was still possible to put solar panels on a school, but you'd have to charge the school for the electricity, hopefully at a reduced rate. But the savings were obviously significantly less than if they were getting free electricity. So I think there was a slight case for a while where schools were, hang on a minute, I used to, to get free electricity. Now I'm having to pay 12, 15p. That doesn't sound like a good deal. So it took a while for schools to have sort of realized that the world had changed and they'd missed the boat on the free stuff. Then we had academization. So that was another distraction. All the schools were becoming academies. The councils were spinning out their schools. They didn't really want to sort of spend too much time decarbonizing them. You know, along the way, you also had Brexit and a few issues around costs of solar panels and import duties. So there's a whole bunch of distractions and schools are busy. I mean, the, the head teacher's main priority is his students, not his electricity bill. Uh, and yes, the students starting to make a noise and not turning up on Fridays. And Greta Thunberg, that helped a bit. More schools started to sort of get involved. But ultimately, they're signing a 25-year agreement. And there had to be a reasonable financial incentive to do that um, for schools to sign up. So there was a trickle of schools until, unfortunately, Putin invaded Ukraine. 
And I think two things happen then. One, electricity prices rocketed, clearly, and that really sharpens the mind. So solar was on the to-do list, but it was item number 20, and it now went to item number two or three, because it now became an existential threat to be able to pay their teachers. But the second thing, and I've seen that as society as a whole, the realization that being energy dependent on anyone else other than possibly the sun is not a good idea. So I think that's driving it. So even though electricity prices are coming down, and yes, we are seeing the level of interest dropping a little bit, it's still there and the commitment to do it is still there. The number of councils who signed up to sort of zero two pledges is most of them now. And schools are under huge pressure to show that they are decarbonizing. I think the inflection point was caused by uh, Putin. Not that I like to give him credit for anything, but I think you might be able to in this case. And I think it's now staying because of the general awareness of what the weather's doing. So yes, in the first seven years of our existence, we funded about 70 schools. And we've had nearly twice that number of schools sign up in the last year. Amazing. So that is funding them. Whereas before we had more people who prepared to fund schools than we had schools ready to take the funding. We now have the opposite problem and we need to raise about 10 million pounds of funding for these schools over the next six to eight months. And therefore, we've got a number of crowdfunding activities taking place where we offer investors about five and a half percent interest uh, in exchange for helping a school decarbonize and enabling us to do the student work. You've obviously had a background related to, well, being in the venture capital space as well, financing companies, startups, et cetera. When you think about raising the money you need to raise now, what are the challenges that you face? What is the funding landscape looking like for investment into solar projects behind the meter? I'm sure that'd be super interesting for our audience. Funding the projects on the schools, we're currently trying to cross a bit of a chasm. Once you're doing 200 schools a year, about 20 million, then infrastructure funds, pension funds, uh, I start to become interested in investing in those projects. At the sort of 1 million a year, you can raise that through crowdfunding very easily. At the 10 to 15 million, which is kind of the area that we're currently navigating through, it's quite hard because you really need to massively ramp out your reach and exposure to individuals who want to invest from 500 pounds, but you need a lot of them at 500 pounds to make up the numbers. So we're currently preparing to ramp up our marketing significantly. So that's one challenge. It's the sort of size of the amount that we're raising versus the sort of people who put that kind of money together. We're too small for the big institutional funds still and getting a little bit too big for, for crowdfunding. I still think we want to do crowdfunding because I think the social aspect of investing or supporting your local school is very attractive and it's a relatively safe investment. It's a relatively small ticket and you can be directly involved with that project effectively, rather than just leaving your money in a bank account or putting it in a large fund. The, the second thing is the interest rates. And, and interest rates, as we're all aware, have been going up. They were sort of you know, oscillating around half a percent two or three years ago, and they're now five and a quarter percent. So when we were offering 5% or even 3% a year and a half ago, that was deemed very attractive. We're now offering five and up to three, five and three quarters. And compared to Bank of England at five and a quarter, it's maybe not that attractive an investment. So that's a challenge. So we need to appeal to those who love what we do from an education point of view and love what we do from a society point of view in terms of decarbonizing a school rather than potentially decarbonizing a commercial building to attract more people who want to do it because it has other value to it other than a pure financial return. Again, it's just another form of creating that community ecosystem relationships between crowdfunding, so individuals who are funding for local schools that maybe their kids go to, don't go to, might go to in the future, educating the kids, obviously benefiting the schools. It's trying to create, it seems like, that loop that eventually, as with what you hope with growth loops, has an exponential effect or compounding effect on your company's impact on the world as well, as you've talked about earlier. Do you see some of the changes that have happened over the last few years, both geopolitical, but also just purely government and regulatory, has caused problems and uncertainty that may have slowed down 
the renewable penetration and certainly the success that your business could have achieved? And also just generally, what do you start to see the need and the role for regulation to play in the future as well to effectively, you know, hit your mission? One of the, and this is very particular to the market that we're in, the purchasing decision-making process within schools and councils is very challenging. We've tried to work with the Department of Education to come up with a more efficient process as to how the DFB can allocate funding to schools to enable them to go solar. And they're interested in doing that. They have a budget to do it, but they're concerned that it will go to the schools that don't need it versus the ones that do. We have a mechanism where we can do that. We've built some software, which is actually about to be used by the national grid um, to allocate half a million pounds a year of grants to schools. And we've got some criteria. We can apply that to our database and we can then filter schools based on that. So the money goes to the schools that need it the most. So getting the DFE to adopt some of these techniques and streamline some of the internal processes that schools have to go through to get solar would make a massive difference. And not, I mean, it's probably a little bit unfair to say this about this, but individually, there's lots of people in there who want to do the right thing, but collectively, they're currently still getting in the way of it happening faster. That's one piece of legislation that, that could change. And I think it is changing. There's a number of people that are working hard to, to, to make those changes. We've built some tools to enable them to do that. And hopefully at some point, they will either use our tools or someone else's tools, if someone else has built such a thing, to, to streamline the allocation of resources to schools to make schools happen more quickly, or at least streamline the process for decision-making so that it doesn't take up to 18 months to get an approval from your school to go ahead. So I think that's one area. That's very specific to schools. I think on a wider level, carbon tax, because it's such an obvious way to focus our minds on decarbonizing the areas that are highly intensive, whilst um, using more of the things that are less intensive. There's a view that adding another tax to the, the, the population would be undesirable, but actually the wealthiest are those who consume the most tax or carbon intensive goods. And so we would be proportionately, you know, be taxing proportionate to the impact you're having on, on, on society and the environment. But it also enables a whole bunch of new technologies that are not quite economically viable at the moment because the full cost hasn't been factored in uh, of the alternatives, i.e. the CO2 output of them, to then thrive. I kind of believe in markets when markets work. And at the moment, you just need that carbon tax to be in place for that market to work. As we saw the benefit of having tax and levies added to energy bills in order to kickstart the solar and wind market predominantly and, and others through things like the feed-in tariff scheme, renewable obligation scheme, and, and now with renewable guarantees of origin. What's interesting is that was needed in order to get the benefits of massively reduced cost to build, which now allows for a market potentially to exist more subsidy-free because it has its own momentum. I guess we're seeing something similar with electric vehicles but we're not yet seeing that with carbon reduction, which I think you know needs the same treatment, although there's a lot more interest from the investment side compared to even when I was you know starting businesses 10 years ago in this space around energy, around carbon, around climate, which is very positive. It seems like there, there needs to be an incentive. I guess the pushback, and I'd love to see what you think about it, is this idea of not leaving anyone behind in the transition, kind of what you've already said, but Maybe there is a, a ratio of the tax being associated with those that are the most carbon intensive, and therefore they are likely to be the more profitable, larger companies. If we need to incentivize with additional carbon taxes, if we're going to allow businesses like in schools, for example, to take themselves away from the grid and therefore grid costs be more set for example, uh, weighted to other businesses that aren't able to take themselves off the grid, that don't have the, the, the space for solar, that perhaps don't have the, the budget, and including perhaps some schools. How do we make sure it's a fair transition? And what's your view on that, especially working in a space which I imagine there is budget sensitivity around schools generally and the difference between private school to an academy to a state council school? Uh, I'd love to see your view. And I know it's a difficult one to talk about, but 
I certainly have some views that I've shared previously, and I'd, I'd just love to dive into that a little bit more with you. Yeah, I think so. So I guess maybe split that answer into sort of two parts: one, sort of the microcosm of schools, and two, society. Yeah, uh, on a wider level. So, so within schools, one of the things that we try very hard to do is that it's actually quite easy to do solar on a large school. I mean, the economics stack up very nicely. The savings are great. The financial returns that one could offer are potentially higher. It's equivalent to that of you know putting solar on a very large sort of warehouse. What's really hard is getting the economics to work on a small school and or getting to work on a school in the north. And if you look at our portfolio, actually, we have a lot of schools in the north because we kind of want to make sure that we're even. We right. don't pick the large schools in the south. We basically work even harder to make sure the schools that approach us in the north work because equally, the supporting schools in the north often have tighter budgets. They often have a higher proportion of, of, of children with free school meals. They need that money even more. So we go the extra mile to make sure that those projects in the north work. And for example, the national grid, their, their filtering policy is also run based on schools that are in areas with you know, hardship uh, to try and free up some of the budgets and increase the savings for those schools. So at a school level, and again, the DFE wants to make sure that their grants are applied to the smaller schools that have the tightest budgets in often areas that are deprived. So there's a lot of people within the school area who are trying to make sure that there's a bit of a leveling up and a fair playing field. Now, if I then look at society as a whole, interestingly, if, if you as an investor wants to invest in solar on a building and you invest that solar on a commercial building, you will get a return but the benefits of the solar will accrue to the building owner or that tenant, not society as a whole. If you invest in a school, the benefit is to ultimately the taxpayer, which is ultimately society as a whole. Plus, you get the education multiplier on top. So like for like, putting a thousand pounds on a school gets you much more societally impact than putting a thousand pounds on a commercial building. So that's a sort of slightly stepping into the sort of the commercial wider picture. Mm. If I then look at ensuring that, for example, implementing a carbon tax doesn't disproportionately affect those who are most vulnerable to higher increases in costs. I think there's two things. There's an experiment done in, in, in a number of countries, I think Germany was one of them, where they basically gave everyone a, a credit. You said, look, the average carbon footprint of the population is five tons. We're going to give you £250 per person extra a year. And we're now going to add the tax to all those costs. And so therefore, if you didn't change your lifestyle, you're zero, zero. But actually, if you change your lifestyle a little bit to focus on the lower CO2 items, you're quickly actually ahead of the game. And that will certainly apply for, given that it's the average for the population, those who are below the average income will benefit. And those who are above the average income will have to try a little bit harder to not actually pay the real environmental cost of their lifestyle. I guess that comes down to the regulatory policy and framework and even just the implementation to be simple, but no simpler. I, it needs to be relatively complex and not just a uniform for this to actually work, which we don't always know can come out of uh, UK government. But it seems like with better education around that, at least the starting places, if you can reduce where the taxpayer's money is going, if you can reduce their costs, including their energy costs, then that's an easy place to start because, as you said, the, the value is distributed back into the society itself rather than to just the pockets of the original investor and the business itself, which obviously there might be indirect benefits flow through, with perhaps cheaper product over time, but ultimately schools seem like a like a really strong place to start when it comes to both decarbonisation and cost reduction policies. I mean, I think it goes back to the sort of education. There's a some, still a very large number of people who would argue that the current increase in carbon in the atmosphere and the resulting increase in temperatures are but a blip in the historic cycle of our planet. And yes, we take a long enough time frame, it is but a blip. But every time that the climate has changed, it has had devastating effects on the populations of the planet at the time. So rapid climate change makes it extremely uncomfortable 
that'd be an understatement, for a large proportion of the inhabitants of the planet. And the faster that change, the less time anyone has to adapt. So there's an argument, go, yeah, but you know, we're humans, we can adapt. Uh, we've got time, we just build, you know, bigger dams. I was in the Netherlands this summer, looking at Delta Works. And Delta Works was built after a large flood, I think in 1958, took about 40 years to build. It would cost about 60 billion to build in today's currency, although the person who was giving us the tour said that was probably an underestimate. And I can cope with five meters of sea level rise. Five meters of sea level rise. Yeah, the potential sea level rise from um, the, the Greenland and the South Pole melting is you know, 70 to 80 meters. Now, no, maybe not all of it will melt, and it won't, won't all happen in the next decade, but it's melting faster and faster. And the point is that when I asked him, okay, so what's the next stage? We want to go from five meters to 10 meters. What do we have to do then? So, well, we actually have to close the English Channel. We have to build a dam across the bottom of it and a dam across the top of it. I went, excuse me? Yeah, it would cost trillions. So to mitigate against climate change, it will go, yeah, we'll just mitigate against it. Yeah, mitigate against five meters of sea level or 10 meters, sorry, 10 meters of sea level. That's before you include the storm surges that are coming because of the, 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 the more volatile atmosphere. I mean, we can't just... Netherlands, who's got the money, can't just spend trillions closing the British, the English Channel. This idea that we can just continue as we are and um, let's focus on keeping our costs down now, yes, but the costs that are coming to us in the future are going to be nearly insurmountable. And the number of people who will suffer and die in that process could be unquantifiable. So it's somewhat irresponsible to go, we have to focus on terms of energy prices today without thinking about what the impact is of that in the future. And again, Putin and, and Germany and Russia are an example of that. Germany kept its energy prices low relatively because they were importing cheap gas. That is no longer the case. Yeah. So Germany then had to switch on its coal power stations back on again. So their CO2 footprint's gone up dramatically. So, so it was a very short-term uh, view. The short-term cost savings can have very, very large long-term uh, cost implications. And I think with education, we can start as a population to understand those cost benefits and go, yeah, I said, you know what? I should pay maybe 50 quid more, 100 quid more for my electricity because it's a sustainable solution rather than a short-term solution that's actually leading to a bigger problem. Yeah, it's funny because uh, we think about change and, and I saw a lot of positive sentiment. I think I mentioned this before on the podcast. It is motivating to see how as a society, we can rapidly change to manage things like COVID. You know, in, entire wide societal change almost overnight for a long, sustained period of time. But the difference with that is it was such an easy sense of urgency and you could see the short-term impact. How you understand the long-termism view, because even those situations that you're talking about easily could occur within our lifetime, but thinking more than five years ahead, thinking even more than five months ahead, especially for some people in businesses, can be so tough. And I think the difference being with COVID, why, yes, it was positive, but we can't be so tactical and reactive to failing to decarbonize because, you know, the momentum shifts too far. You can't just suddenly close the channel and spend a trillion. It's, it's interesting. And I keep coming back to then the issue around education and business to business peer and person to person adult to adult communication it really just come back to that thought that if you work it at the level of the younger generation who are coming through and you can see the impact of greta and other individuals on educating the younger generation they have a chance to educate upwards and an impact perhaps better than peer to peer which I think often can come across either preachy or bias or political, as we've talked about at the beginning. It just keeps coming back to me saying it's so important that we bring that to the front and center of our educational processes. I think the only other thing, and I'd be interested to see how you've approached this in, in your business, because it's something that we take, in fact, one of our values is simplicity, is the other way we can solve this is by taking all of the complexity, taking that long-term view of we know what's going to go wrong, we're kind of on the inside, we can see the impact, but we also understand the solutions that are complex. If we can translate that into a simple product that just makes also economic sense, 
for businesses, then we can help in the transition by creating a simpler, better product for them today. And we've seen the impact of something like this with electric vehicles. Like eventually, actually buying an electric vehicle is cheaper and it's a better product, potentially. And therefore you get natural adoption. We see the same things with us trying to move away from the wholesale market. You know, the complexity of how it's done is incredibly complex and the technologies needed to be built, very difficult. But if we have no behavioral change and you can just buy renewable energy cheaper than you would if you went through the traditional market with no behavioral change, suddenly it becomes a no-brainer. So when you think about your transition with your product and how you've been engaging with schools, what are the things that you've really found help them understand that process, simplify it and make it an easy purchasing decision for them? You know, other than just as we've seen, like generally seeing the impact of super high prices and what it can do to their energy bills, is there other things, including things that I'm aware of, like confidence in the project delivery and avoiding what we might have seen in the past, perhaps cowboy industry of, of solar developers, knowing that the panels they're buying, for example, have long-term support and warranties. I'd, I'd love to understand the other areas that you found really help influence and have a higher adoption rate for schools. Wow, there's quite a lot of things in that statement to sort of unpack. I, I think it would be wonderful if we had a magic bullet that solved the carbon problem and the energy revolution and decarbonize our planet overnight, that there is no magic bullet. On the other hand, that doesn't mean we should go sort of give up and go, well, there's no easy solution, I'm not going to do anything. And I think we encourage students to sort of think critically about the different ways they can achieve that. And there's a bunch of great books. I mean, there's sort of drawdown, I mean, there's sort of guidelines of all the different steps that we can take to basically bring down our CO2 to, to neutral. And maybe in the comments afterwards, we can include the, some of those books. Bill Gates put together an excellent book on climate change and what society needs to do to do it. And it's not, I mean, you read his book and you go, actually, this is not brain surgery. This is not mm. science. We could do this. And I think your point about COVID is a really great one. If the world as a whole actually puts its mind behind it and gets on and does it, we can get there. I think what I'd say to each individual is we all have, especially in the Western world, very comfortable lives, busy, comfortable lives. The main barrier is, I think, our own reticence or laziness to actually just spend a bit of time doing some homework. Yeah, maybe we need to pretend we're students again and we need to do some homework. And that homework is just understand your own business, try to understand where your carbon footprint's coming from where your energy costs are coming from, and look to see what technologies are out there that could solve one of those problems. Don't have to solve all of them today. Just pick one, learn from that, and then pick another one. Learn from that and pick another one. Our philosophy with the schools is that solar panels are the first and easiest step, but it's not the last step. Mm. The next step is heat pumps. They've done LED already in most cases, or that pumps pretty much the same time as the solar panels. But it's a journey. And we don't have to solve the entire problem this year. But equally, you can't wait 10 years to start solving it. Start walking down that journey now and start learning. Do some homework. And when the schools consider the value proposition then as solar being a kind of a first step towards it, and, and just highlighting, appreciate it took a long way to get there, but how do you make it just easier for them when it comes to that purchasing decision? Just generally, because I, I agree with you, we could say, hey, it's up to us to be educated, to understand more about the business. I take a more bottom-up market approach being like what I am seeing right now is there's lots of companies in the carbon space that are going to make it way easier, way simpler for businesses to understand what they can do, how they can do it. And yeah. Yeah. entrepreneurs out there, that's, that's the moral obligation I have and we have is like we can't expect everyone to get educated. So it's our job to create products that make it so simple and easy that it becomes a no-brainer in itself without the need for education, which obviously can slow it down and, and reduce the, the penetration. Yeah, I'd love to understand, you presented, I think, a little bit, and maybe even a good example of one of your recent projects. Like, What does it come down to in terms of those purchasing decisions for the school that you really try and help and improve? Yeah, I think that's, that's a, a valid point. We try extremely hard to make the decision process as easy as possible for school. And one of the things that we do is, is taking out all the risk and the unknowns. So the schools are not investing in the project themselves. We're providing the funding. The school's not in charge of looking after the system. We do that. 
Yeah, so it, it literally is, all they have to do is agree to a 25-year agreement. Yeah, it's a 25-year mortgage, effectively, with an organization that's actually, they become a member of. So they join a club, the club is funding their solar panels. So we've gone to extraordinary lengths to make it as simple as possible. But I can take a horse to water, but the, the horse still has to choose to drink it. And we've made that water as clean as possible, but they still do it. And that's the same for businesses. There are businesses out there who have made the solution to your particular problem as easily to implement as possible. Maybe they're funding it, they're providing it as a service. But I think a lot of companies start from the point of view of solar panels are too expensive, or I can't afford them, I have no money, I have no capital, I have no capacity to do this, I don't know enough about it. But then when I go back to the homework bit, find someone who does know, ask a colleague who does, you know, just be a bit more open about exploring what's out there. And there may be solutions, new solutions that you were not aware of that could solve that problem at no risk to your business that would have a long-term impact. Floor. It's, I think it's pretty clear from the conversation, but when you think about you know, the future, the future of your business, of generally the planet, you still fall presumably on the optimistic side. I presume you see that there is a way to move forwards. Are you hopeful in humanity's ability to just get things right eventually? Or do you really think there needs to be some serious improvements, probably top down as well in terms of policy and our leaders setting that direction? Because I, I wake up every morning, I have to be an optimist for the business. <laughs> if you're running a business, you have to stay optimistic. You're always looking for the opportunities. And, and deep down, I kind of know and I'm seeing the unit economics of general decarbonization projects and energy related projects. They're starting to make so so much sense just from a, almost a capitalist market view that I think eventually we'll get there. And I, I think it, you know, we'll get there in time. I think there's a big question of what socioeconomic impact is and the opportunities in this transition to really benefit the whole of society, perhaps not just maintain those that made money off profiteering of carbon, now also trying to profiteer off a new future of decarbonization. But I'd just love to know where you sit when you think about the next 10 years. How optimistic are you about? the way that, that things are going? Most of the time, I'm an optimist. I think to start a business, you need to be a bit of an optimist. When we go into schools, we make it a policy to be positive. I, I don't think we gain anything by scaring students or young people about the impacts of climate change. But I think by and large, they're worried about it enough. There are scenarios that we could end up in which are you know pretty horrifying. And I really, really hope we never get to that point. And I suspect, like, most things, it'll be somewhat self-regulating. If we're not going fast enough, the world around us will get worse, and that will make us go faster. So the real question is, how much pain do we as a society want to put up with before we make the changes fast enough? And the longer we leave it, the faster we have to move, the harder and more expensive it becomes. So will climate change wipe out the human race? No, we'll survive. Maybe not very many of us, but we'll survive. And the question is, how many of us survive and how comfortable that survival is completely proportional to how much effort we put in now versus in five years or 10 years? Because in five or 10 years, we'll be trying to survive and mitigate. Now we can try and avoid. What I say to students is that change is very, very rarely linear. Most change, if you look at history, is exponential. It takes a very, very long time to build up. And then gradually it starts to snowball and more and more people get on board. And I see that on the rooftops around me. In the first 10 years, one or two roofs went solar. In the last few years, a dozen went solar. It does change. And the more people who do it, the more other people who do it. Every person who's got an electric vehicle and talks about how wonderful it is, encourages three or four other people to change their electric vehicles. And then they'll do the same and, they'll, and, and so on. So change is not linear. So on the basis that change is not linear, we will succeed. If we take our current trajectory, we're doomed. But I don't believe we'll stay on our current trajectory. You've seen this even from your venture capital background. You know change isn't linear. It's exponential. That's what you even hope for as well. So it's, it's funny. It all comes you know, full circle there. Look, Robert, really appreciate your time. I know we could get onto all sorts of conversations about will energy be free in the future and what's the impact of that? And that's probably a podcast for another time. But in case our listeners want to help 
their schools go solar, get involved in education, or just find out more about solar for schools? Um, where 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 can they go? What can they do? So thank you. So solarforschools.co.uk is our main website. It's aimed mainly at schools signing up to to register and find out how they can go solar and how we can help them fund that solar project. Uh, we also then have a new website aimed at potential funders, and that's cbs.solarforschools.co.uk, stands for Community Benefit Society, where you can sign up for a newsletter uh, where we'll be sharing information about how you as an individual can help decarbonize uh, and potentially invest in some of these projects. So, Robert, we like to wrap things up with just two quick fire questions, take us out of the the intensity of decarbonization, the future of the planet. But just simply ask you, do you have a favorite song on repeat at the moment? I do not. I am terrible in that department. I rarely listen to music. And if I had to put something on, I'd probably put something on like Enya, much to the despair of the rest of my family. Oh, you know, I'm pretty sure there's been many a party where I've been dancing to Enya. Slightly inebriated, so I can understand that. Dancing and, as a but no, no, <laughs> can't really listen to that all day. And what piece of technology would you say you can't live without at the moment? I have to admit, I'm rather attached to my Apple Watch. How come? Well, A, it reminds me to stand up regularly because I spend my life sitting at my desk. And B, the ability to pay with it is actually pretty handy. So yeah, those are the two things. One, it tracks my exercise and B, allows me to pay without having to have a wallet on me. Okay, amazing. Well... Thank you so much. I'm sure our listeners will probably resonate with the Apple Watch features. And I'll send you over some songs that might inspire you on your mornings to get you up and ready for a new inspiration in that. I've got, uh, yeah, my founder playlist. Look forward to hearing it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Robert, for your time. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening. Share this with your friends and subscribe to stay informed and support a future powered by 100% Renewable Energy Direct. We're on a mission to bring together innovators who are making a positive difference to our planet. Why not become a planet innovator yourself and send in your own topics and questions? We want to know what you're curious about and might even end up on the show. To find out more, visit tim.energy. Anyway, that's all for now. Catch you in the next episode.